was good. Very good. Thank you, choir. Would y'all give them a hand? Thank you for leading us to the throne. We're going to continue in our series, Family Vacation, today. We're going to look at uh, uh, Proverb number one. So you can turn your Bibles there. If you are using one of those pew Bibles, number 554, page 554. And I encourage you to read along in just a moment with us. We're in this series. It's just, it corresponds with our own vacations, our own family vacations. And here we're kind of doing the same. We're taking a little road trip, if you will, through the Proverbs and discovering the wisdom that God has for our lives to help us understand how he wants us to live, the best way to live, and what wisdom is and how we find it and how we walk in that wisdom. And we've, we've done a lot of that over the past several weeks, and we'll continue to do it for a few more. And today, we're going to realize that we have a lot of choices in our lives, a lot of opportunities. And vacations are, are often the same. It brings, uh, the summer brings a lot of choices for our lives. A lot of opportunities. We got vacations to go on. We sports teams to cheer for. We go Braves, right? Um, our jobs. What are we going to do with our jobs? Are we going to be? Uh, are we going to make the choice to, to to work all the time, or you know, balance that out? Are we going to choose to spend time with our families? You know, or, uh, those kind of things. And, and I've, I've been thinking about, especially with last week being 4th of July, I've been thinking a lot about um, allegiances that we have, and not just allegiance to our country, and I, I pray that we, that we are uh, in that spot of allegiance to our nation. I certainly am myself. But what are all the allegiances that we have, the things that we can choose? And uh, even our country and our patriotism, those are things that we choose and the allegiances that we have. And all of these choices and opportunities, I've thought a lot about that. And I'm so thankful that we do pledge allegiance to our country, and I think we should do more of that. And then we also, you know, I have my ball team, right? And that's my favorite vacation spot and my favorite theme park and my favorite place to get ice cream. And we have those allegiances in our lives. And sometimes when it comes to sports teams and, and other things in our lives, we'll fight over those things just as much as we will our country or our uh, freedom of religion and those kind of things as well. We make choices all the time. I want to draw our attention, and this passage draws our attention to ask the question, where does our ultimate allegiance Lie. Let's look at the wisdom found in Proverbs 1, 7. If you're able, would you stand? I know it's real quick, but would you stand in the reading of God's Word to honor it and ask for God to speak to our hearts? Proverbs 1, 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We see two potential objects 
of our allegiance. This, this passage really draws it down to two options, two places in which we can be, uh, have our affections, our lives uh, oriented around. It, it really puts it in two places, in two objects of our allegiance. And I pray today that this message will help you to choose the one you ultimately need to consider. The first thing that we see in this passage is that allegiance to the Lord leads to actionable know-how. Allegiance to the Lord gives people actionable know-how. Don't worry, I'm going to explain my point. My, explain, my point is supposed to explain the Scripture, but I'm going to have to explain my point a little bit, and we'll get there. So this mentions that the beginning of knowledge is fear of the Lord. Can I say for just a moment... We don't fear God anymore. We don't fear God in our day the way people in prior days used to fear the word of the Lord and the name of the Lord. This word means to fear exceedingly. Now, some may say it means reverence or reverential awe, and that is certainly a good way to explain it, but it falls short, I believe. I think it falls short of what the proverb writer is trying to convey, that we have one way to find true knowledge is to acknowledge who God is and to know God is to understand that he is worthy of our worship because he is creator, all-knowing, and his ways are perfect. And when we think about him in the proper context, it should put in our hearts a little bit of, oh my goodness. Let me explain by reminding you of a passage of Scripture in Isaiah 6, one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture, or one of my favorite to quote, especially when you're understanding and acknowledging who God is, and that if you and I were to be able to glimpse Him today, just glimpse Him today, like actually physically see a portion of him, what would happen? Well, the Scripture shows us there are several places where people get real close to seeing him, or in this, in this specific example in Isaiah chapter 6, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So Isaiah is there, the prophet is there, and it says in Isaiah chapter 6 that the glory of the Lord filled the temple and that there were, uh, there were seraphims floating around, they're covering their eyes, they couldn't even look upon the glory of the Lord. And what happened to Isaiah in that moment? I've described it this way before. We, he says, woe is me, what does that mean? Now, I've heard it said that he was pronouncing a curse upon himself, and that may be true, but what really that word means and that phrase mean, means is that in that moment, he about wet his pants because he was so scared. I'm not joking. Really, that's what it means, that he was so afraid of what has surrounded him, it had caused him to be so uh, uh, taken aback and reverential awe. See, that, that phrase just doesn't cut it enough. In that moment, he about wet his pants because he was terrified to see God in this fullness type of way. It helps us to get a glimpse of who God is because in our hearts and in our minds, we have sometimes 
belittled or dumbed down who God truly is. He's the creator of all things. He has a certain way that he wants things to be done. And we don't like to talk about that. Because we, we will say things like, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. I want to be uh, faithful and true to the God of the New Testament. I would just say to you that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The beauty is that in the New Testament, we get to see the character of Jesus who comes, still God, still holy, still perfect, but maintains that while God is just, holy, perfect, and someone in whom we should be afraid is also very near to us because of Jesus' sacrificial love and death on the cross. And sometimes it can be hard for you and I in our infinite abilities and our, our, our finite abilities to describe the infinite God and who He is. To hold at the very same time that God is just, holy, perfect, and righteous and at the very same time loving, kind, and gracious. And that is not a paradox. It, 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 it is not something that, it is a paradox. It, it exists at the very same time simultaneously and each is held up. And one does not outweigh the other. But so often we focus only on the things that we like, we forget that there is meant to be fear. Jesus explained it this way in Matthew chapter 10 when he told those who were following him in 28 through 33, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. It's easier for me. He knows mine a lot easier. <laughs> Fear not, therefore. You are of more valuable, value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, whoever has allegiance with me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus held up perfectly this thing of fear God. He can, he can destroy soul and body, but don't be afraid, he says in the very same thing, because he says, if he has two sparrows in your hand, he's got, in his hand, he's got you in his hands. And so what, why we shouldn't fear is because we approach him appropriately. This isn't the way we like to think about God. Yet Scripture shows us our need. This past Wednesday night, we began a spiritual warfare class, and um, many of you were there, and I, I appreciate you coming. And we looked at spiritual warfare in the beginning, in, in, in Genesis, and in, in, that's all we looked at, Adam and Eve and how spiritual warfare began. And what we saw there is that the serpent tricked Eve into believing she didn't need God. And she didn't need to fear judgment from God because of her disobedience. And in speaking about that encounter, this uh, a theologian, Alan P. Ross, says this. He says, Here is the lie that has allured the human race from the beginning. 
There is no punishment for disobedience. But the Bible again and again makes it clear disobedience brings death. There is a need to fear God and not following Him. So acknowledging God's worthiness is like saying we are casting our allegiance on Him, to Him. We are lining up our lives with His life and following His ways. When we do, we receive knowledge. And that's what it says here. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that word literally means actionable know-how. It's not just cognitive understanding, but it is understanding that leads to action. And that's what I mean by actionable know-how. Fearing the Lord leads us to be able to understand Him and act upon it and live our lives in the way that brings action out of our lives for Him. I can act upon it because I understand it. I know it. James 1.22 is, uh, is a verse I'm reminded of, and it says, Be doers of the Word, not merely hearers only. You see, knowing God, fearing God, understanding who He is, and aligning our lives with His brings a place where we actually do something about it. We say, okay, God, if that is your way, if this is how you want things to do, be done, so allow me to find a way to follow you with my life, with my actual actions, with what I do. This will lead us away from the thinking that is pervasive in our society that says, I can believe in God, I can know Him cognitively, but do whatever I want to with the rest of my life. And that is not true. We must align our lives with who He is and live our lives accordingly. So acknowledging who God is leads me to being able to know how to act like him and like he wants me to and act like I am aligned with him and, uh, and I am in allegiance to him. The second thing that we see in this short verse is that allegiance to immorality leads people to destruction. I told you at the beginning and that in this passage we have two objects, two options for where we may place our allegiance. And the, the scripture, the proverb writer just lays it out. He's like, you either follow God in his ways or you are living a life full of immorality. How do I know that? Well, number one, the word discipline here may be, may be instruction in your translation, but that word in the original language actually means um, moral living, moral living. So what it says here is that fools despise wisdom and moral living. And so one would understand that if you despise moral living, then you enjoy immoral living. And immoral living in this passage, in this understanding, is not necessarily like, you know, uh, like sexual immorality or something like that. That's not necessarily it. It's really a bigger umbrella. It has much more underneath it. It's living your life in a way that is 
the antithesis of what God would want you to do and how he, he would want you to live. So if, one, if someone despises moral living, they must enjoy immoral living. And that's what a fool does according to the Scripture. The fool hitches his life to immorality and hates wisdom and says things like this, I want to live my life my way. And that was the lie that the enemy told Adam and Eve in the beginning. You don't have to live the way God said. You don't have to follow his rules. He just doesn't want you to be your own deity, to be your own God, to do your own thing in your own way. And he says, you can do something different. There's another way. What this passage says, the one who does that is foolish. Be careful, dear friend. Living this way will lead us to destruction. If the object of our ultimate allegiance is anything but God, we are foolish, and foolishness leads to destruction. This is a hard teaching. We don't like to hear when we're wrong. We want soft teaching regarding our choices and our wrongdoing. We, we, uh, we want grace. We want forgiveness. We want understanding. And what I want you to see, and I'm afraid we don't see it as clearly as we should, is that doing wrong is serious. Living our lives in allegiance to someone else or something else is serious because it reveals something about our hearts, not merely our actions. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 gives us a glimpse though, of an option where our hearts can be changed. You see, this is a hard teaching because it confronts us with things we don't want to be confronted with. But I would say that that confrontation, that tension that we feel is a good thing because it sets us in a place where we have a problem that you can't fix, I can't fix. And I need someone who can. And that's the beauty of Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, we have the promise of one who would come who could fix it. We have a promise of one who could come and change our hearts. And in an in in amazing way, take stony hearts and give them a fleshy disposition again. We see in Ezekiel a promise of Jesus to come. And not to change our external behavior, but to come in and radically change the thing in our insides causing us to do the behavior again and again and again. I have training as a counselor. I, my undergrad was in that. I have a Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling. In addition to my MDiv, it just means I have a piece of paper on my wall. That's about it. 
But one of the things that they help you see in those type of classes is that when someone comes to you with a, pr a problem, it's often not the real problem. What they call it is the presenting problem. It's the thing that shows up. It's the external representation of something deeper that needs changed. And oftentimes, we people need to go to counseling because they can't see it themselves and they need somebody else to help them recognize that they have something deeper that needs to be changed. Friends, can I tell you? Our mere behavior is not the problem. Our wrongdoing is not necessarily the problem. We have a deeper problem, and that is that our hearts need changed. And so Jesus, the great high counselor, the great high priest, the mighty counselor promised in Isaiah 9 comes in and finds the root cause in our hearts and he changes us from the depths of our souls outward. That's why we can't do it on our own. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So Jesus came to fix our hearts. Not merely change our behaviors or even to say, it'll be okay, do, you just do you and my grace will cover it. No, remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery? Everyone brought her there, trying to test Jesus and what he would do. And He says, who of you that hasn't sinned, you, you can be the first one to cast a stone. And they turned around in shame and walked away. And then Jesus spoke tenderly to the woman. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, God, Jesus, comes to change us completely so that we won't even want to sin anymore. May we trust Jesus, sin no more, and cast our allegiance to him. I pray that he will work in your hearts and lives today in this moment. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, would you work? Because you... We can't change ourselves. We've got a stone, stony heart that needs to be changed out for a flesh one, a soft one. And only you can do that. If someone is here today, Lord, that doesn't know you, would this be the day, Lord, that they come to faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in you? Would you work in our lives? Is there someone here, me included, that needs something on the inside changed so that the outward self changes? Would you work in our hearts and in our lives? Would you do what only you can do and change us from the inside out? You move, God. You work, God, in this moment because this is your moment. Work in our hearts. Change us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. Would you stand? And as you stand, we're going to sing. And if God is moving in your heart in any way, would you follow him in this moment? Whatever he's leading you to do, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to lead you in any way that I can. You come down if you'd like. You do business with God in these moments that he would change our hearts.